we're Barry and Anita Chenault. My name's Edward Devlin. My name is Rosalie Devlin. Hi, we are Brent and Sheila Howell. My name is Matt Weisman. Hi, my name is Ken Rollins. My name is Chad Lewis. A little bit lower. A little bit, a little bit lower. Yeah, a little bit lower. Yeah, that's good. My parents weren't really focused on anything. They weren't religious at all. My dad would send me to Bible school for basically daycare. When I was 12, I decided I wanted to go to church with a friend of mine. I was brought up to the front of the church. The preacher put his hand upon my shoulder, pushed me down to my knees, and looked me in the face and told me I was going to hell. I never went back to church again. A friend of mine, he invited me to come to church on Easter with him. And for some reason, I called him up a week before church and told him I'd go with him. Nate gave a great sermon on Jesus and how God had put Jesus on this earth in human form and Jesus had died for our sins. Jesus went to the cross so that I could be forgiven. So I went home, I cried, and I asked for forgiveness. I've been back at church every weekend since. I've had multiple people that I've talked to that now are contemplating coming to church because of words I've talked to them about, things I've, I've discovered in my life. Amen, amen. Well, I'm, I think this might be a little bit, a little bit too high. Uh, Go ahead. Well, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to, to be with you this morning. I think I was with you guys the last. That's right, right there, right there. Just perfect. Okay. No, you're you're a fantastic pastor and a fantastic preacher. Nate is, Pastor Nate is one of these folks that um, anytime I come around him and we have conversations, I always leave encouraged. And um, I am amazed, and I am excited, and I am so filled with, with hope and joy at the work that God is doing here at Coastal Gloucester. And so it's evident that the grace of God is upon you. And so today we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation, chapter 21. We're going to cover all 21 verses as you find your places in your electronic devices, all 20, uh, actually all 27 verses. Um, as you find your places in your electronic devices or your uh, Bibles. I, I was in Puerto Rico last week preaching at there, and um, I was preaching in my native language. And usually when I get up to preach um, and I go to another church, I live by a motto, blessed are the short-winded for they shall be invited again. <laughs> and so I usually keep my sermons to about 30 or 35 minutes. And so I preached and then I went to the YouTube link to see how long I had preached. And I had preached for a an hour and four minutes. <laughs> Apparently, when I speak in my native tongue, <laughs> I go longer. But don't worry, we're not going to be speaking in other tongues today. <laughs> I'm going to be preaching in English. So having, having said all that, vamos al libro de revelaciones. <laughs> Uh, it's good. It's a joy to be with you. Let's 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 pray. Father, um, thank you so much for the opportunity to share your word. Lord, we get to open up the Bible and worship you. And so, Lord, we pray that Christ would be exalted, that you would help me to communicate with clarity 
and accuracy the things that are come in your word. I pray that you would remove distractions and that you would minister grace to the hearers and that we in turn might receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. And I'm excited to teach in, in this chapter because many people don't read the book of Revelation or preach from the book of Revelation because they find it intimidating because of maybe the uh, apocalyptic or end time teachings that are contained there or because of the language or the imagery or for uh, even uh, fear of not understanding some of the things that are there. There are different reasons why people don't read or study or preach from the book of Revelation, which was written by the apostle John, was given to him in a vision as he was uh, in the island of Patmos. And so in this great chapter of the book of Revelation, we are reminded of the urgency of living for Christ in the light of eternity. So what I'd like to do today as we go through this chapter is highlight some of the powerful truths contained in this vision and then make them applicable to our lives. With that being said, let's begin our reading there in verse number one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And in these uh, top two verses, the first three verses, we see that number one, the appearance of the new heaven and the new earth and the, its capital city. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And I don't know if you give time to thinking about this, but there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Even the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament talks about this, for he says, For as my new heavens and the new earth that I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, as from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come and worship before me, declares the Lord. The Apostle Peter affirms this truth in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, where he says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its work that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Listen to this. Waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to the promise, the promise of Isaiah, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which dwells righteousness. Now, I'm not sure to what extent we will have a new heaven and a new earth. 
What we do know is that everything that was affected by the fall will be dissolved and redeemed or made new. In fact, Paul in his letter to the Romans in chapter 8 teaches us that the whole earth is yearning for the appearance of the sons of God. He goes on to say that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. These verses remind us of the destructive nature of sin. In fact, God warned the Israelites that if they continued in ungodliness or if they did some of the things that the other nations did, like sexual immorality and the murder of children, he said that the land would vomit them out. And so we see that sin not only affects us, but it affects those around us. Sin affects our culture. Sin affects our families. Sin affects our cities. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, Solomon writes this. He says, for righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Another beautiful thing that we see in verse 3 is that the holy city is adorned as a bride before her husband. This is redemptive language. We often read in the scriptures that Christ is the bridegroom or the husband of the church and we are the church, the bride. In using this language, the Holy Spirit is communicating that the city is part of God's ultimate redemptive plan. And we also see in this passage that letter A. There is a supreme reality of the new heaven and the new earth. Can you imagine a new heaven and a new earth untouched by the decaying and destructive power of sin? We should be living, we would be living in a world that is not falling, which brings me to point number two. There are changes in the new heaven and the new earth. And we read about these in verses four through six, where he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And these verses speak to us of the changes that will exist in the new heaven and the new earth. There will be no more pain. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more death or tears. And we see that Christ is seated on the throne. Can you imagine again a world where there is no sorrow? where there is no pain, 
where there are no tears and where Christ himself is our ruler. Unfortunately, too often we are distracted by the things that give us pain. We are distracted by the things that give us sorrow and we become anxious and we become fearful and discouraged because our focus shifts away from the eternal realities and its glories until this earth. This passage should inspire us to live with an eternal perspective. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper wrote, and I quote, Remember, you only have one life. That's all. You are made for God. Don't waste it. In his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. The things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. The word look there is the Greek word skopio, from where we get our English word scope, as in telescope or microscope, devices that we use to focus in or zero, zoom in on things. And the connotation of the Greek uh, word is that we are focused or we are looking intently. Paul actually, in Romans chapter 8, makes a comparison. He contrasts this life against the life to come. And he says, for I consider that the pain or the sorrow of the troubles of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glories that shall be revealed. In 2020, we were still on the tail end of the COVID and we had restrictions. A friend of ours, her name is Jane, she attends the Yorktown campus, has given me permission to share this story. That December, December 24th, Christmas Eve, she lost her brother. Christmas Day, she lost her mother. A week later, her sister went on life support and was kept on life support for the next week or so. In the span of 30 days, she lost three people in her immediate family. I remember attending the funeral and watching Jane get up to speak, and I heard her utter these words. She said, this has been difficult. This has been painful. But God is good. God is sovereign. And God is holy. And I'm sitting there dumbfounded, hearing her in the midst of all of her pain reflect on the character and the glories of God. A few weeks later, I remember asking her, Jane, how are you doing? 
She said, Pastor Tito, sometimes I struggle. Pastor Tito, sometimes I miss them. And sometimes it hurts. She said, but my faith is in Christ. And my hope is in eternity. And sometimes when I experience exchanges with believers like that, you mean to encourage them, but you leave, you leave encouraged because of the power of their faith and their eternal perspective. Which brings us to the latter part of verse 6 and verse 7, where we read about number 3. The residents of the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to what it says. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he shall be my son. In these verses, we see the privileges and the blessedness of the inhabitants of the new heavens and the new earth. He will make all things new, and Christ himself will quench our thirst, and we will receive our full inheritance as sons and daughters. Those who live in the city are called conquerors. Oh, I have to ask you at this point a rhetorical question. Are you living from the position of a conqueror or are you living a life of defeat? You see, being a conqueror is not circumstantial. It is a position that we have in Christ. In fact, Paul in his letter to the Romans chapter 8 verse 37, he says, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians 2, 14, it says that Christ always causes us to triumph. You see, victory has nothing to do with circumstances. Victory is a mindset. Victory is an attitude. Victory is a disposition of faith and trust in Christ, regardless of what life might bring. I believe that Brother Job put it this way, though he slays me, yet will I trust him. Our victory is an attitude which says my inheritance is not in this world. I am just passing through. I am a stranger and a pilgrim in this world and I will be content. I will have peace. I will have joy. I will have everything that my Savior died to give me. This is why Paul says, I have learned to be content whatsoever my state is. I know how to abound, have much, and I know how to be abased. It is not an arrogant self-reliance, but it is a posture of a humble heart that is reliant on Christ's victory, and therefore we partake in that victory. 
And it's a wonderful attitude to have. But in verse 8, we read about a different kind of attitude. Let's pick up our reading there in verse 8. But as for the cowardly and the faithless and the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with sulfur, which is the second death. Here we read about point number four, the outcast from the city. Many will be left out. Here we are informed of the sad reality of those who reject Christ, those who do not believe the gospel, that we were born sinners. The Bible says that we were by nature children of wrath and that we of our own volition, of our own will, cannot meet the righteous requirements of God because God's requirement is that we be perfect. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, and we are not. It's not that we be good, it's that we be perfect. But God in his infinite mercy with which he loved us, he sent his son Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life of obedience and died on a cross for our stead and was buried and placed in a tomb and rose again bodily from the dead on the third day to give us the hope of eternal life and to prove that he was in fact God. And now when we repent of our sins, when we receive Christ, when we believe the core facts of the gospel, that Jesus was God, that he died for our sins, and that he rose again bodily from the dead, and that he died, did that for us, we are saved. We are saved. I feel compelled to take a moment to, to talk about what it is being a believer. You see, the sad reality that these outcasts also includes people who were false believers. These outcasts also includes people who were deceived and thought they were believers. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, we read, On that, in that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you workers of iniquity. You see, apparently, these peoples were connected to the work of Christ. These people were involved in doing religious things. These people, to some measure, were experiencing spiritual gifts. Only to come to the end, to face our Savior, and he say, I never knew you. You see, they were deceived into thinking that they were believers because of what they did but they were not. Others, other people have what I call heritage Christianity. And I don't mean to be offensive with that. And heritage Christianity says this. If you were to ask him, well, tell me a little bit about how and when you got saved. 
The question that you get by and large is, I've been in church all my life. Oh, my great granddaddy was a preacher. My granddaddy was a preacher. My daddy was a preacher. I know about the things of God. But tell me when did you receive Christ? When were you born again? When did you repent of your sins? When were you sealed with the Holy Spirit? Let's contrast and take a look, a little look at what it looks like in the life of a believer when we have actually internalized the gospel. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, we read some very interesting verses. It says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this hope you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, listen to this, and is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood it, understood the grace of God and truth. When the gospel has taken root in our lives, it will cause us to grow and bear fruit. When the gospel has taken root in our lives, there is a growing awareness of our own sinfulness. And there is also a growing awareness of the holiness of God. When the gospel has taken root in our lives, there is conviction of sin. There is a lifestyle of repentance. The person who is a believer has a difficulty living a lifestyle of sin. It's not that they never sin. It's that they hate their sin and they want to kill their sin. And 1 John chapter 3, John says that, that it's impossible for them to live a lifestyle of sin because the seed of God abides in them. You see, our divine election calls us to forsake sin. Listen to what Tim, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And even though we read about the outcast of the city and we should be warmed by them in verses 9 and 11, we read about number five, the general appearance of the city. Listen to what it says in verse number nine. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come and I will show you a bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down from heaven, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And even though we read about many details in the city, we also are given a general appearance of the city. It's interesting that God gives us both. Now, if you're anything like me, I like summaries and bullet points. Now, there are some people who really enjoy getting into the weeds. They really enjoy details. 
And because God loves us and because he cares for us, he provides both options of the city because God knows that he created us with different personalities. And let's continue our reading there in verse number 12. It said that it had a great high wall with 12 gates and that the gates were 12 angels. At the gates were 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod 1,200 stadia, its length and its width had equal height he also measured its wall for 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also the angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like the clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first jasper, the second sapphire, the third agite, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprice, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were, and at the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made with a single pearl. And the streets of the city were of pure gold, like a transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gate will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In verses 12 through 21, we are given number six, the exterior design. And another thing that I'd like for us to focus on is and observe from this passage is that the city has specific external measurements. We discover that it has specific external beauty. For the walls were full of all types of precious stones. We are also informed about the 12 gates, each made of a single pearl, which speaks of its external character. We also discover that the city has structural integrity because we see in these verses that it has 12 foundations named after each one of the apostles who are, by the way, the foundation of the church, which is founded on the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. But not only that, we also discover that number seven, the internal character of the city. 
And from verses 22 through 27, we see that God himself is in the city and that he gives it light. His glory is in the city and the city is full of integrity and godliness for nothing detestable or sinful will ever be there. In closing, let me contrast these two points. The city has very detailed external features and very God-filled internal character. This is how it applies. We are called to have both external actions that reflect God's design for our life, and we are called to have an internal devotion and holiness that reflects Jesus' lordship over our lives. Our growing in holiness should be both internal and external. There are times when people can have good actions and good behavior, but they lack the internal devotion and peace that comes from a sanctified heart. My brothers and sisters, we are really missing out if we do good externally, but internally we are a wreck and have no peace and joy and abound in the love of God. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. Other times, we can have real internal awareness of our sinfulness and a real awareness of our need for God, and yet we are crying out to God and we constantly struggle externally with certain besetting sins, which are reflected in our attitudes and actions. We are called to grow in both areas, our internal devotion and our external attitudes and actions. God cares about both. Here are some verses that speak directly to this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, since you have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh, the external, and the spirit, the internal, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, he says, For you are not your own. For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, the external, and in your spirit, which are God. And my favorite verse, which is in Jude chapter 23, he says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. In other words, he's able to empower you to live a righteous life and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding great joy, which is internal. God cares about both. At this time, I want to invite the worship team and the prayer team up. Let me close with this. There will be great joy and great blessing in the city. What awaits us in the kingdom of God is a glorious and blessed life.
And so I want to encourage us today and remind us today to live our lives with the urgency of the now and yet living in the life light of eternity. Perhaps today you heard the gospel and you're ready to receive Christ. You recognize that you need to trust Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Perhaps you've been distracted by the cares of this world and you need God to help you to maintain an eternal perspective. And maybe you've only been focusing on one area of your life, either the external or the internal, and you need God to help you grow in both. I want to encourage you not to leave this place if that describes you without receiving prayer and ministry. Would you stand to your feet with me as we enter into a time of worship? Father, I give you praise and thanks for your words. And I pray that as your people ponder the words that have just been spoken, that you would minister to the hearts in a special way. In Jesus' name, amen.